Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Shoot an owl, save an owl. Coming up a little bit later as we discuss what happened this week with our panel of local journalists. We've got political analyst, contributing columnist, Joni Balter here. Hiya, Joni. Good to see you. Seattle there Times. Go. Good to see you, too. Seattle Times environmental climate reporter, Amanda Zoe. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And environment and climate sure uh, affected your work week, well, <laughs> as we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter, Alex Halverson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Bill. And thanks uh, to everyone who can watch us on YouTube. If you want to live stream it that way, I'm waving at you right now. Oh, by the way, uh, listeners, join us for our Year in Review event. That's coming up. We do it every year. This year, it's next week at this year. It's next week. (laughs) Got that? Thursday, December 14th, Year in Review, 730 in the evening at Cornish Playhouse at Seattle Center. Uh, you can go find out ticket information at org slash events. Uh, or if you can't get tickets, uh, if we sell the thing out, then um, just make sure and join us again next Friday for the year in review. Okay, let's get at what happened this week. And this is uh, this just in this morning. The city of Seattle said it has canceled the idea of building a playground at Denny Blaine Beach, a public park. Denny Blaine is not officially a nude beach, but... For decades, it's been a gathering spot, especially for LGBTQ people. And it's one of a handful of places where people, including Sophie Amity Debs, feel safe picnicking and swimming and sunbathing in the nude. I think it's it's really important for a lot of us. I know, especially because it's a mostly trans friend group, and a lot of us have felt a lot of shame and discomfort around our bodies, as you know, pretty much everyone does. But uh, also, especially is I think leveraged against trans people in you know this society. A lot of people who feel really uncomfortable with their bodies are able to have a really freeing experience coming here and being celebrated and just hanging out and you know taking in the sun and enjoying a really lovely day without any shame. The city proposed putting a children's playground at Denny Blaine, partly because an anonymous donor offered to pay for it, but only if it is at that park. It feels as though the private donor behind this is possibly intentionally putting these two groups in conflict in order to drive people off the beach. Drive people off the beach. The suspicion is that this donor wanted nude beachgoers to feel so uncomfortable around kids and around the public reaction to them being near kids that they would just stop coming to the beach. So this week, a crowd of people came to a public hearing to stop that playground. All it takes is one parent who doesn't like the idea of their kids or themselves seeing naked people for there to be problems. The city said the reason to build the playground there was not just the private donor part. The city's mission is to create more play spaces and shoreline access for young people, and there are no playgrounds within a 15-minute walk of that park. And you didn't buy that argument, Joni. Oh, no, I'm so happy um, that the park department is deciding what I consider the right way. Uh, You know, why why does Seattle do this all the time? We're always trying to fake fix a problem that doesn't even exist. You know, uh, this this beach at Denny Blaine, I, I live in South Seattle. 
and I know these various beaches pretty well. Uh, you go to Denny Blaine in the nude? No, I have not done that, and I knew you'd ask that, but um, oh. I'll just get to my argument okay. here. <laughs> it, look, for 30 or 40 years, this evolved as a use, a natural use of this particular stretch of beach. There are a lot of beaches along there. Uh, many of them are playgrounds. I'm all in for the kids, all in for the playgrounds. But, you know, one thing that just drives me crazy is how often, you know, some do-gooder, in this case an anonymous do-gooder, comes along and says, we can fix it. We can do it better. It's not broken. Hello. What do you mean by do-gooder? You're, well, are you assuming that, you know, there, there's a lot of suspicion here because. Well, kids, we, money, yeah. playground. Free sort of, playground. They're yeah, paying for it. I sort of got to that way. Okay. But I mean, also, the fact that this person is anonymous, and I know there's a lot of donations, I get it, that that are, people don't want to say their name and stuff. But in this case, this is the most un-Seattle thing you could do, to say, here, I'm going to give you this big gift. I'm going to change the use there uh, dramatically from what it's been for 30 or 40 years, but I'm going to give you this big well, but the, gift. The donor's not necessarily changing the use, right? By adding I mean, a playground? There's not a rule. Yeah. I mean, the Seattle, go ahead. I'll, I'll let other people speak. Well, this is kind of the big problem, right? It's why open government advocates and journalists and other people advocate for transparency in government because it's really easy to be cynical about something like this when we don't know who's putting up the money. We don't know why they're putting up the money, but they're tying it to this specific park in this specific area. And it's a, it would make a big change to a community. And you strip the identities of either party away. If you're making a big change to a community, you're going to have people in that community going, well, why do you want to change it? And who is changing it? Again, that's mm-hmm. it's a problem with it being so opaque. Yeah. Amanda? Yeah, I thought the writing on the wall for um, this proposed playground was sort of... I, I kind of got the sense it wasn't going to pass after all the public testimony. Yeah. And then especially when the Seattle Parks Foundation, which was asked to be the fiscal sponsor for this project, pulled their support and they said this doesn't align with our values, having heard from the community. One of, I think the question I sort of have now is like, to what degree did Seattle Parks anticipate this happening? Um, you know, like, did they think this community wasn't very organized or did they think this would be just sort of they would just roll along? Because, uh, you know, it's it's been a huge community response for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was well, pretty swift opposition. Yes. Um, which was kind of surprising. I didn't see much support in favor of the park. But I want to be I want to I would like to be clear myself and, and to walk listeners through this. It's not illegal for there to be nudity at a public park with a playground, right? The Seattle Times reported that sometime, that there are parents who bring their kids to this nude beach. So it would be this kind of off-the-books... Like, if, if, if some outraged parent calls the cops... They're not going to get any response from the cops, right? It's not, it wouldn't be illegal. Well, so I, I guess this is uh, one of those parts of the law that I just was not aware of until this week, and I was reading all the coverage. But um, apparently it's not illegal to be nude in Washington, but it is illegal to, you know, like expose yourself in like a way that's unexpected or, you know, And intended. if children are nearby. Exactly. That that's where you get into but trouble. That's, but where ch- if children are nearby, is that in the law? Because yes, my under- I think so. It, it, it is. Are you? Oh, it is illegal I think, I think to be nude with children. Below, it's fourteen and below. Yeah. And it's oh. if it seemed if it seemed to be, shall we say, presenting yourself in a way that is. If it causes a front and alarm, it becomes a misdemeanor, right? And that's where a lot of advocates for the park were saying this effectively would shut us down, right? Because in a, on paper they could coexist peacefully, but right. it would take one parent to say 
this nude beach is causing a front and alarm for okay, these Okay, which children. could happen now because if if, if people bring, if parents bring their kids now, it's a public park. It's just that we know that this is a, a safe space, a happy place for yeah. people who don't feel comfortable other places. And so no one's expressing alarm and calling the cops. Yes. So here's oh, a okay. thought that I had about it a little different. I mean, if this is just a cool, generous gift... Why can't it go to some of the other areas of the city that actually need better playgrounds? There are many locations that need improved playgrounds. If it's just like I want to help the kids and I want to help have more play space, you know, for for people living uh, throughout that area. Well, the city says this saves them the money. This is a free park and they can spend that money on a playground someplace else. Yeah, but this park doesn't doesn't currently have this kind of a playground. And so it... Who says it needs it? Why not in an area that's already craving more equipment well, for kids? Well, the city said there's no part, there's not a playground within a 15 minute walk. There are other, other, play, other beaches and play and parks where where it could go. Uh, and in fact, the, there, the, it sounds like the sight lines are not the sight lines are good for a nudist beach because they're they're sort of you can't see the beach from the 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 upper area. But there, but that also. Um, there's other beach it, access. It just doesn't have playground equipment on it. There's plenty of other beach access as you go. Yeah. Well, Councilmember Mosqueda brought this up in a in a statement. The things that make a nude beach a nude beach make it a kind of a terrible playground. Like you brought up the sight lines. Yes. It's very near water. If you've ever watched kids or if you had kids. You can't guard the beach. Yeah. You and they move very it. fast. So you yes. want to be able to see them. And she yes. also brought up there's other sites that would work. Lakeview Park is 850 feet away, she says, from Denny Blaine. Uh, Veretta Park, I think it's how you pronounce it. It's 500 yeah, feet away mm-hmm. from yeah. um, Denny Blaine. So these are areas that are wider, bigger, where the park could go. Right. Yeah, one of the things brought up by the community members this week is that, you know, while there isn't a park within five or ten minutes, um, th- this area was sort of low priority for Seattle Parks to begin with mm-hmm. to put on a playground because there are playgrounds that exist, you know, maybe like a mile away, not like a quarter mile away. Um but yeah, so and, and and you know, of course, the wealth argument has sort of been brought up here, which is like, well, here's like a, a pretty wealthy neighborhood, and they want a playground here and only here, but nowhere else, and it's it's a low priority site for the the city. Right. Yeah. Well, so th- is the city's policy that the city doesn't add an amenity to a public park without the permission of private citizens who've used it that way for a long time. Because that's the argument that rich people make when they treat public lakefront access as if it's their own private park and say, oh, it's been this way for decades. Well, they changed that many years ago. They they came in and said people who were, I forget the word, but um, who were basically adopting the adjacent space for themselves, for their own use, like a basketball hoop on public land or, you know, spreading out a beachfront property. So it does take the narrow or bigger piece of beachfront that's public. Mm-hmm. They filled in there. They put a lot of pocket parks in these places. You can see them if you go down the lake there. Yeah, I'm just saying if there, I didn't realize it was illegal to be nude around um, minors or, or people under 14 or whatever it is. But if that's true, then the nude use of the beach is taking away the use of a city fund, you know, a public 
Yes, a public park have, for some people. But yes, just, we have we have various populations of people who need access to the lake in I the agree. summer. In case I you agree. haven't heard, it's getting a little warmer in the summer. <laughs> yes. that's, that's what makes it so cynical, right? Is uh, <laughs> we're not saying this is illegal, but we're going to put in this thing that conflicts yes. with what people are already doing there. Right. And now, if you do it, there's a high likelihood that you're going to be harassed by law enforcement yep. or punished for doing this thing. And that's how these safe spaces go away. You move something in and it just discourages people from doing what they were doing there. Right. And one of the things that the community members brought up this week is that it's not even about the law. It's about the perception. It's sort of Mm -hmm. playing into this, you know, conservative narrative about LGBT people, which is, you know, they're out there to like sexualize and groom your children and sort of putting a playground right where there's like a traditional use of a nude park would sort of they, they a lot of these activists felt like it would sort of play into those narratives because there's this narrative that nude equals sex in the first place. Like, I, I, it seems kind of like it, it ought to be that big a deal in the first place. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pro nudity. I'm happy the people who love the beach get to keep using the beach. I, I think and, this is our, like, Seattle sensibilities this coming really out. Is. <laughs> this really is. This really is. But we, I just think that certain things that happen in the city, not everything needs to be, you know, reviewed, changed. Yeah, some things can just be what they are, and this evolved this way, and it helps a community um, enjoy the summer. Let it go, and they did. So Yeah, and they did. Okay, anything to add? Do we cover it? Okay. Um, so another thing, you're listening to KOW's Week in Review. We've got Joni Balter, Alex Halverson, Amanda Zoe here, and Amanda, amid record-breaking wa- rainfall, you went to a flooded town where flooding is a way of life. Yes. Um, so for anyone who does not live in uh, literally any part of Western Washington and Oregon, there was an atmospheric river this week, which pretty much meant we got dumped on with rain. Um, and that resulted in flooding in a bunch of our rivers here. And on Wednesday, I believe, um, yes, Wednesday, I went to this town which is essentially, you know, everyone there describes it as a town that was built on an island within a floodplain. And, you know, everyone who's lived there for decades says flooding happens every single year. Um, So it's not that, you know, remarkable to them that this year the river sort of reached a record high. Mm -hmm. Did you get there by boat? Oh, uh, no. So (laughs) This is Sylvana in Snohomish (laughs) County. That's correct. So on Tuesday night, I think the this tiny town of like less than 100 people like kind of hit the media because... Um, like the whole town was flooded. Like you could not get there without a boat. But by the time we got there, the waters had receded and, mm. you know, people were cleaning silt off their up. driveways. Yeah. yeah. I thought this was a beautifully written story and it, it really took took me there just the way you described everything. Uh, this is a town that I think where everybody needs a power washer. Is that right? Because <laughs> not um, surprised, yeah. when this happens, it's just the muck and you got to get it clean. Uh, you know, this is very common for certain communities, Preston, Fall City. There's certain areas every late November, early December. Yeah. Many, not every, not but, every, but yeah. you know, there's what we used to call the Pineapple Express. Now we go atmospheric river. Just why do we ha- Why do we need a term for a lot of rain? I mean, is, are we saying this is something different from the rain that's always yeah, to, to, ma- to make it more pants. dramatic, you know. Well, right? well, it's like a specific weather pattern that they're describing. It's not just like little precipitation here and there. It's okay. like a stream of like warm, moist air that comes from the ocean over western Washington. Okay, but that's hap- that's not just a climate change thing, right? There've been no, atmospheric that, rivers forever. They they happen, yeah. and there there is you know research out there that implies that um, there will be heavier rain in the latter half of the century. But you know, it is it is a weather pattern, right? 
So, you know, NBC News, when they did their uh, Seattle, uh, the whole Northwest is flooding story, they sent their reporter at least had one photo of um, Snoqualmie Falls. Oh, yeah. Like, and so I ended up getting calls from around the country like, is that Can you, you swim? <laughs> How are you doing? And it was like just so overblown. But um, yeah, that's my street. It's yeah. Crazy. Right? Yeah, that's that's my backyard. How did you know? <laughs> well, one thing I always wonder, you said this was a record year for the flooding. Every time we get these sort of record weather events, is the record an anomaly or can we expect, do you know, more record years? Yeah, that's actually something I don't know. And I didn't look at sort of like in the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. like what the river records have been like. Um, But it is something that scientists say is going to get worse as time goes on, you know, maybe not next year or the year after, but like in 50, 70 years from now, um, the lack of snowpack and just heavier rain events in the fall is going to result in uh, pretty much more intense flooding. And you said it's a way of life. And it is for a lot of these communities, especially in Snohomish Valley. There's a lot of communities that flood. Was there any sense of this is especially bad this year or did they kind of take it in stride like they do every year? Is there is there any worry that they would have to leave the community or they'd not think about that at all? I wouldn't say it got to that extreme. Like they were pretty much taking it in stride, but also admitting like, you know, this one was pretty high. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this was this was a this was a good one. <laughs> Well, they had, spe- they had expected uh, less um, height yes, of the yeah. river, like 16 or 17 feet, and then ended up with 21. But then by the time you got there, it was receding. Right. Now, we're supposed to have another, I don't know if it's a half a blast uh, of the same stuff tomorrow and Sunday. So um, are you, are you going to go back and check on it? <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, I'll probably keep an eye on the hydrograph that you know uh, NWS publishes online. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to look like the next week. Well, so is there eventually, if if Sylvana is already flooding as a way of life and they're used to it and it's going to get worse, is there eventually not going to be a Sylvana, Washington? I really don't know. Um, you know, one of the people I talked to, they built their like store and home like 10 years ago and they, they very intentionally like set it several feet above the ground um, because they were anticipating flooding. Mm. So okay. so I don't know. Um, I guess that might also speak to general like population trends that more people are living in cities than you know these small towns. Mm-hmm. Can we and, drink? Can we use as much water as we want again? I, I think you have to tell Bill if he can take that bath that he's, <laughs> he's been talking about <laughs> in, in the bath? notes among us. Yeah. Um, can you? The, the water is gonna is is close to normal, isn't it right now? It, it kind of seems that way, but you know, Seattle uh, Public Utilities, which provides water for pretty much like all the towns and uh, most of the towns in King County, I think, um, they, they still have their voluntary water restriction going, which has been the case, I think, for the last like two or three months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they are thinking about value. I mean, they evaluate it every week, and you know, I think it could be possible they might rescind it. Um, but it does look like the two reservoirs that we sort of depend on are back to normal levels. But a snowpack is better than torrential, you know, than, yeah, than, the, yeah. than the rain for for the region and for water use. Right. And that was and sort that's of shrinking. And that, that sort of came up in October when we got like the first bout of rain. Like people were like, oh, can I can I take a bath? Yes. Like, can I stop? <laughs> you know, can I use water as um, as I used to? Um and the the utility pretty much said like yes it did rain but it wasn't enough and also like we're looking at projections like three or four months in the future not just like today or tomorrow right okay well uh, Crystal is open now fully open Crystal Mountain Ski Resort I ninety is back open over Snoqualmie Pass chains are required and apparently this is a problem the state the transportation department says most of the drivers who spun out 
were not chaining up or you know, didn't have traction tires. Did you see the tweet from the Washington State uh, Patrol <laughs> Trooper? No. Uh, someone's chains weren't uh, small enough, so they used a USB cord to, to alleviate, <laughs> yeah. alleviate and then, that. And the whole car lit up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they said you can't do that. Is so there a fine ticket. for not chaining up and then causing either an act, you know, well, even just closing the freeway or having to be hauled out of the ditch or anything? Is there it really? I believe penalty? if you don't use chains when you're supposed to use chains, there's a fine. There's a there's if, a fine. if you cause it, you'll get the But you think about it. A lot of people have cars that they think, this 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 car can do it. This car is going to be able to do it. I don't need the chains. And so they just keep chugging up there until they run into everybody else that have the same thought. Yeah. Okay. Um, forecast sh- rain at time, like sh- rain this weekend, but then a dry week after that. So yeah, current, dry-ish. Dry-ish. <laughs> yeah, that's about all we can ever say. Dry-ish. <laughs> okay, we're talking with uh, Amanda Zoe here from Seattle Times. We've got political analyst Joni Balter. We've got Puget Sound Business Journal's tech reporter Alex Halverson. And we'll talk about a business story, Alex, here in just a moment. We're going to take a short break on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I sure hope you'll stay tuned. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with Joni Balter, Amanda Zoe, Alex Halverson is here um, on the business beat. And Alex, uh, Seattle's Alaska Air Group is buying Hawaiian Air, almost a $2 billion deal, if regulators approve it. Is this going to go through? And then we'll get into why we should care. I, I don't like to make predictions about mergers going through. I mean, who knows? You know, Microsoft Activision went through. Kroger, Albertsons, a big one's kind of in the air. There's also one with JetBlue and Spirit Airlines that's um, facing a lot of scrutiny right now. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it does, uh, it'll be $1.9 billion, and they'll use um, about $900 million of that to wipe the debt from uh, Hawaiian Airlines. Um, and then they'll be able to fly to Hawaii. <laughs> and And... Yeah, this JetBlue, I was going to ask you about that, because the Spirit Airlines JetBlue, it seems like the Biden administration is frowning on that. I'm wondering, is that for any reason that they might frown on an Alaska-Hawaiian merger? You know, I actually don't know. I think it would just make JetBlue a lot bigger. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I think one of the differences there is that JetBlue, in trying to buy uh, Spirit, Spirit is a um, legitimate low-cost airline. If you're comparing Alaska airlines and Hawaiian airlines, they charge similar amounts. And so there is a legitimate government interest, public interest, in saying we should have low-budget airlines. We should not let them be scooped up, eaten up Mm. by uh, a bigger company. Yeah, there's an argument of stifled competition between JetBlue and Spirit. You know, they serve a lot of the same routes. The interesting thing about Alaska and Hawaiian is there's not a lot of overlap in their routes, um, our national chain did a, a, an analysis of um, different routes, and they found that there wasn't a lot of overlap. So you can be a bigger company in this country. You can be a monopoly. You just can't do things that stifle competition. So as mm-hmm. long as regulators don't think they're doing that, it'll probably go through. Does that also mean price ticket prices are not going to go up? I, when, I hear about, when I hear merger, I think layoffs and higher prices in general. There's always the chance. But again, since there wasn't that underlying competition – there might not be a real reason to. Now, maybe Alaska buys wine and they just jack up the prices and then they don't have any other competition. There's always a chance of that, but uh, it could could not happen as well. In general, mergers are not good for consumers. I mean, at the no. beginning, 
I don't want to bring up the worst one. Oh, yes, I will. Um, Bartels and Rite Aid. How'd that go for everybody? Uh-huh. Uh, so this merger, to me, you know, like ask yourself if your flying experience is getting any better. Did your seat get better? Uh, bigger? Did it get any bigger? I don't remember it's that It's really happening. hard to fit in these seats. And, <laughs> you know, they're just cramming more people in. I mean, and you know, uh, KUOW has a lot of listeners that are probably holding some miles on Alaska. And if you add the additional um, mileage consumers of Hawaiian, is that going to get you mileage flights easier, lower cost, or even upgrades anymore when you add that many more people to the pool who are going to be vying for those kind of benefits? Is that how it works? The more customers there I don't are, know. the harder I don't know it is how to they get do miles? It, but I'll not, I don't know how they do it, but it's a limited number of people who are going to get those, hmm. I there's think. Also, there's I think. also the question whether Hawaiian would survive without this merger. You know, Like I yeah. said, they had $900 million in debt. They have a fleet that's um, aging really rapidly. Um, we reported that their um, their 717s are about 50% through their usable life, so they'll have to eventually replace a lot of their fleet, mm. and they don't have a lot of the money to do that. And they have a decreasing um, customer uh, base every year. Uh, part of that's because of the pandemic. A lot of airlines did as well. But it's uh, it's hard to continue when you're that far in debt and you don't see any additional way to make revenue. And they don't... They're not all Boeing like Alaska is, right? No, they've got a mix of Boeing, some older Airbuses, and a lot of their fleet is um, planes that have planes and jets that have been discontinued. Hmm. Well, Alaska just replaced Starbucks with a Portland coffee brand. Are we going to get some Kona coffee now? On, uh, on <laughs> Which is highly overrated, if you don't mind my oh, is it? saying. Oh, I okay. think so. I mean, one thing you could see for customers is uh, – Fewer layovers, fewer multiple stop trips going from the mainland to Hawaii. Um, once Alaska has Hawaiian, they'll be able to do a lot more one-stop or no-stop trips. Um, so the optimistic case for the consumer is easier flights to Hawaii if they're not cheaper. Yeah. So for some Seattleites who can afford it, this, there you go. this might be might be okay. Are they going to? But they are going to keep Hawaiian Airlines, right? It's that they're still going to have the flower and the. Yeah, I'm sure it'll act as some subsidiary. Yeah. Um, front facing, nothing will change, but you'll see Hawaiian maybe by Alaska or something like that. Right. And they'll keep their headquarters in Hawaii. Um, oh. Okay. Which uh, Alaska has its headquarters in SeaTac. Are they going to change it to Hawaii Airlines to be consistent with oh, Alaska? Is it Alaska Hawaii or Alaskan Hawaiian? How can they merge these two corporate cultures if they disagree on something so fundamental? <laughs> and where does Horizon fit into there? You know, they have to overhaul <laughs> yeah, the whole oh brand. There'll oh. be so many names on the plane. The mind reels. Okay, so if this goes through, they're talking about it, the deal closing in 2025, right? Okay, so we'll follow it. Um, and by we, I mean Alaska. I mean um, Alex Halverson from uh, Puget Sound Business Journal who comes by and tells us about stuff like this. Oh, hey, the the Alaska, the off-duty Alaska pilot who tried to shut down the engines on the flight from Everett to San Francisco is out of jail, out on bail. He told, you know, just for those who don't know, he told police he had been dealing with depression and a lack of sleep and that he had taken psychedelic mushrooms two days before this incident. And he was facing... 83 attempted murder charges, one for each person on that plane. His attorneys argued he didn't want to hurt anybody. He was freaking out. And and any of those charges are now downgraded to reckless endangerment. And he is court ordered to get help with his mental health and stay away from drugs and stay away from airplanes. Not a good ad for psychedelic mushrooms and not a good ad for letting some of these folks come kind of ride the flight out in the cockpit, right? Yeah, riding in the jump seat. Mm. Well, it's 
It's pretty rare. It is pretty, pretty rare. darn rare. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Um, okay, so you're listening to KOW's Week in Review. Did I mention the? Uh, has it's been a while since I mentioned the year in review? Just want to let you know that's coming up next week, Thursday evening at the Cornish Playhouse in Seattle. Uh, you can find out all about that. You know, it's a really fun stage event and special guests and all that kind of stuff. Go to kow.org slash events. And in any case, uh, just tune in for year in review at this time next week. Okay, let's talk about uh, shoot an owl, save an owl. The <laughs> federal government is considering letting people hunt non-native barred owls in order to save their competitor, the Pacific Northwest native Northern spotted owl. The northern spotted owl is a threatened species. They are losing the battle with the bard. Uh, Seattle Times' Linda Mapes describes barred owls as relentless predators who eat anything that moves. Quote, they will yank worms from the ground and salamanders out from under rocks, nail birds on the wing and anything in the water from fish to snails to crayfish and frogs. Even slugs are on the menu. And they're just bigger and more aggressive than northern spotted owls. When I, having lived here a long time, when I say northern spotted owl, it takes me right back to the nineties. Uh, and I know Alex, your 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 folks lived in Forks, right? In in yeah, my, Timberland. Both my parents are from Forks, and mm-hmm. I believe both of them lived there at that time in nineteen ninety one when the basically the whole town shut down, so they could all travel to Olympia and protest the habitat protections. Um, basically. How I heard it is uh, the state expanded the habitat protections for the northern spotted owl into uh, second-growth forests, and a lot of the residents said, hey, those spotted owls live in primarily old-growth forests, which are already protected. And it really put a, um, a squeeze on the timber industry, which was already kind of struggling at the time. Yep. Um, so a lot of folks were mad. Amanda, I think you and I were taught you, you were saying this is you were very interested in this story, this idea of a legal hunt, owl hunt. Yeah, well, I mean, just just imagine someone shooting an owl with a gun. <laughs> yeah, like I, I remember um, Linda is one of my colleagues, and she was telling me about this story idea, and she's like, "Oh, well, they're proposing like killing this one owl to save the other." And I said, "Oh, how do you kill a barred owl?" And she looked me like dead in the eyes and said, "With a gun." <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, it's just I just feel like the idea is so crazy. Like, just imagining someone shooting an owl like in the middle of the night. Like, the way you attract them is like I think you pretty much like camp in these woods and you like play the sound of like a like a barred owl to attract like a barred owl towards you. And then you know I don't know how they spot these things in the dark, but then yeah, I guess they're nocturnal. You shoot them. Yeah. yeah, this is happen all happening in the dark. Yeah, and then and then you shoot it. Um, but I mean, I think it's it's really been like a heartbreaker for a lot of like bird lovers because like no one really loves the idea of killing an animal um and then i think a lot of the focus of the story was talking about how really it's you know the human impact here that have made the survival of these creatures so um so hard and, yeah. and now we're you know we're, we're meddling again to to shoot now <laughs> yeah will you remind us how humans have held back the northern spotted owl I am not totally clear on and it. And helped the barred owl, But by essentially, the way. I think it's we've, we've helped the barred owl yeah. by growing timberland across the country that allowed it to travel here. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it was just able to get here easier. I'm not totally sure. I think, um, yeah, I think settlers did. First of all, they, they stopped. The, there was an, there's an indigenous practice of, of uh, just letting things burn. And, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? In, and in, so they would go. Yeah, and and so the settlers would come and plant a bunch of trees for their own you know purposes in the towns or whatever they set up, and uh, yeah, and you know climate change part of that uh, equation. And so we've we've made new 
habitat for the barred owl. It's, it's an East Coast species, but it's been able to skip along and come yeah. down through Canada yeah. as well. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's like what Amanda said. It's like the grimmer aspects of conservation. For centuries, we were doing these things and not knowing what we were doing, and now we have to fix them, and sometimes the fixes. Killing some of them. Yeah, it's grim, but... Just explain it to the barred owl. I have um, <laughs> nothing but questions about this. Like you were describing how to, how they lure them out for their shooting. You know, how do you know you're shooting the right owl? Maybe you're shooting um, the spotted owl. How, mm. um, do you have to play the exact right music? What if they like <laughs> both music? Uh mm. How do you know it's going to work? Um, and who thinks it's a great idea to have people out there shooting if it's a controlled shoot or if it's, you know, hey, if you see one, nail one, or how does this go? Yeah. Uh, there's no indication, and I'm just asking this, that we have owl-on-owl violence here. In other words, that one owl is hurting another. I did not see that. Well, the barred the owl is more territorial and aggressive. I don't know exactly how that goes. an owl fight goes, but I think they're – yeah, they're aggressive. It's not just that they're doing great on their own. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I just it's just sort of hard to visualize this in some ways, limited ways. It reminds me when we had too many Canada geese here in Seattle <gasps> many years ago, mm-hmm. and they did all these, these things. They flew the geese over to eastern Washington. They came back. They addled some of the eggs, and that worked a little bit. But in the end, they ended up, cover your ears, everybody. They had to gas them in these giant tubs Mm -hmm. and you know it was very unpopular parks department was under great pressure and then their population declined and i don't know if you've been to the beaches around here they're back in in big numbers Mm -hmm. yeah i think the proposal here mentioned it would be in like really targeted areas to sort of limit the barred owls expansion into california yeah Um, like it's and and they really describe this the situation is pretty dire for the spotted owl which is like it's it's really on the brink here yeah i don't think it's a free-for-all like uh like the the lantern flies in new york where they say grab no not that it's not a bounty yeah Yeah. (laughs) but so basically is shooting barred owls a way of saying we're not going to restore northern spotted owl habitat it's like our version of saving endangered species is to just is to kill the predators. Like we drive a species to the brink of extinction and then kill the animals who are responding to the changes that we've made. We wipe out the salmon, shoot the sea lion. It's quite a human response, yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's not necessarily going to save well, the spotted owl. But you have to realize spotted the spotted owl, owl for all the rage you know, against them actually did change forest practices. How... Uh, what trees will be felled? What trees won't be felled? There's plenty of wood uh, among second growth uh, land, and there's pl- pl- plenty of private um, companies uh, felling timber. The spotted owl, for better or worse, actually enlightened us all about uh, the actual unique uh, situation that is created uh, in old growth forests. They're they're really precious. They well, was it about protected. saving those precious forests or that there was going to be some disaster befall us if the northern spotted owl goes extinct? Well, the, the story goes back to when, you know, their preservation um, enlightened people about old growth forests mm-hmm. and why why they deserve to be protected. Remember this owl was actually on a magazine cover. I don't know if it was National Geographic or Time or it's something. Vogue, I think. You know, <laughs> Pardon? I could be wrong. <laughs> Who'd you say? Vogue? I don't know. Oh, yeah, Vogue. I I'm sorry I missed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It was the fashion part of it. Yeah. 
Okay, so this is a proposal. Um, it would uh, allow for the killing of about 15,000 barred owls a year in parts of Washington, Oregon, and California. And, um, yeah, I'm just uh, sort of combing through my notes. I love anything that Linda Mapes uh, writes, and she's, there's just so much interesting in here. Um, yeah, so we'll, apparently you can, um, if, you, if you're a landowner, if you're a land manager, you can... You can ask the agency permission, and uh, and we'll see what happens. So this is just a proposal at this point. I think it's uh, not final, but we'll follow it for you on KUOW. We are breaking down the news of this week, figuring out what happened and why, and we're going to take a short break and play some owl music. I don't know what we're going to play, and then we're going to be right back with more of the show. Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. This is KUOW's Week in Review, live streaming on YouTube, talking to you on uh, radio and podcast. And we have with me Seattle Times environmental and climate reporter Amanda Zoe. We have political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. We have Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. I just want to tick through some stories that we haven't had a chance to mention so far this hour, Alex. And one of them is, I learned this from you, that Zulily is closing. Yeah, it's a Seattle base. As far as I know, effectively a shutdown. We got a warn notice, the Washington, uh, whatever the layoff notice. The layoff notice. That's yeah. Thank you. Um, Last night that they were closing, laying off 292 employees in Seattle, and then Ohio, Nevada, where their warehouses are, got similar notifications. Um, Headquartered in Pioneer Square. Yeah, uh, newly headquartered in Pioneer Square. They were in Belltown up until about a month ago, and they sort of uh, silently, slowly moved. Uh, They had the big headquarters in Belltown. But it's been a really rough year for Zulily. They were sold to a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles called Regent in May. They went through two rounds of layoffs at least. They never disclosed how many employees were laid off. Um, And, you know, we actually found out that they were allegedly targeted by Amazon um, through a Federal Trade Commission lawsuit. Um, the, the FTC alleged that once Zulily started uh, looking at Amazon and Walmart as competitors, Amazon started um, you know, allegedly price-fixing things and specifically targeting Zulily to bring them down. What um, is uh, Zulily? Zulily <laughs> is a e-commerce site, and it's taken on a few iterations. It really started as this, as far as I know, this events-based retail clothing company and it was centered around i think moms originally and they would have it's an events events based retail yeah so they they would have these sales events and they would like um come out of nowhere they'd say oh we have this i don't know lululemon 50 percent off saturday starting at noon and they really relied on customers wanting um slow shipping for really deep discounts basically the opposite of what amazon was doing oh i see um after a few years as amazon was getting more powerful they said okay well Maybe we should try to target Amazon, make uh, big discounts and faster shipping. And that's where it's kind of started to struggle. Um, 
And over the past year, they've uh, had a revenue decrease. They've had um, vendors complain and even accuse them of not paying them. And then they had two big lawsuits over the past two months uh, charged at them that they hadn't paid vendors to the tune of you know, over $2 million at a time. Um, and it looks like they kind of looked at their cards and folded. As far as we know, we haven't gotten any confirmation from them. Their uh, media contact page is blank, so we might not hear anything from them. We don't know. So f- final question, if is, is Zulily going bust? Is it some harbinger of, a, of an economic situation or the financial, like the business model? Or does this sound more like an operational sort of badly run company thing? Do we know? You know, badly run company might be a little too harsh, but it's it's in that part of the Venn diagram, I think, right? I think they kind of bet on this e-commerce future, you know, trying to get with the major players like Amazon and Walmart and Shopify, Mm. and they just didn't have the customer base to do that, is my opinion. Mm. And retail's constantly changing. I mean, you know, the model changes so frequently, you cannot... cannot be secure in this business. It, it just it just changes so so quickly. Yeah, it was probably the brick and mortar stores killing online companies. Yeah, that's like it. it. Happens that's all it. the time. Um, did you all hear about the you <laughs> village killed Zulu? Yes, <laughs> they probably. I like the slow shipping idea. Like the slower it comes to me. <laughs> well, that was early on. It was like you will get name brands for way less. You just have to wait. You just have to wait. And it was. If I give them enough time, will they pay me? (laughs) Maybe. Possibly because that's the fast cycle of holding on to those clothes. That's my side hustle. Waiting a long time (laughs) for packages. Okay, you heard about the uh, the Fred Hutch hack last month, right? Did you all hear about that? Vaguely. No. Yeah. So somebody or some bot hacked into the computers at Seattle's Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, and this week hundreds of Fred Hutch patients got emails from hackers demanding money. This is a patient named Yo Hammerline who says they got one of these emails and that it was legit. And it immediately contained information about the breach and a correct sample of some of my sensitive medical information, including my medical record number. Hammerline says the email told him how to pay the ransom with Bitcoin on a site on the dark web. Fred Hutch says it got about 300 similar calls, and their advice is don't pay the ransom, delete the message, report it as spam, block the sender, contact the FBI, and monitor your credit reports and bank statements. Oh. Do companies owe their customers anything when they're – I mean, look at all the stuff they're describing they're, that the customers now have to go through. There's been class action lawsuits when companies suffer uh, like a data hack and a lot of your information – yeah. Is, is leaked out. Um, I think it's scary how sophisticated this was. Usually it's a case of, you know, if T-Mobile or T-Mobile got hacked a couple years ago and a bunch of information from customers was exposed. Well, what happens in that is you don't really get anything taken from you. You'll just, your number will go to this um, place that, you know, is using bots to just sort of spam you and f- these phishing attempts by email. But rarely are they this sophisticated where they're showing you your information and ransoming it. That is so brazen that if I had gotten that email, I would assume that I was getting scammed by somebody based on the fact that there was a hack. <laughs> yeah, it's right? almost too sophisticated. Yeah. I know. <laughs> You're like, this is definitely a scam. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, um, let's see. What else have we not talked about? Uh, a couple of state lawmakers plan to do something about unspent gift cards. This is, a, this is a good holiday story. So, you know, if you don't use a gift card, the company gets to keep that money, and that happens a lot. Like, it's like 
Like yeah. who among us hasn't lost? How many have you lost? Come on, let's oh, yeah. let's let's oh, be definitely. honest. How many? Many. Many. And they know that, and that's part of the that's part of the plan. Right. It's why the gift cards are a beautiful thing for them. And this proposed Washington law, apparently other states do this. Washington does not up to now. But the the proposal is that after three years, if your gift card is not redeemed, the money goes to the state as unclaimed property. Hmm. That happens in other states. Also, and so you could go to the state and get your money back, theoretically, right? And if you don't, then, then that's more money in the state coffers. Also, you'd be able to cash out the balance on your gift card if it's under $50. And there are actually several other basically ways of tilting the balance back in the customer's favor. Makes sense to me because, you know, this has just been an absolute bounty for places like Starbucks, Nordstrom, many, many, many companies. And, you know, if if we can benefit consumers by putting a few of those little uh, rules in place, that would be a good idea. I think they, you know, okay, I'm at $49.00. Can I please, you know, I'm going to buy $5, $8 here. Can I please have the cash after that? Makes sense. Yeah, but like I knew what I was getting into. I'm the one who lost the gift cards. You're the business guy, Alex. I bet there's some business type. The Chamber of Commerce is listening to this, shaking their fist. I think what blew me away is, you know, there's always like uh, obviously a non-zero chance that companies are going to make money from this. Uh, it's it's money that you purchase and you didn't yeah. actually buy anything yet. Right. I didn't know how much they made. Uh, the Seattle Times story says that Starbucks reported in 2023, 2023 alone, they claimed $215 million in unspent gift card revenue. Like, right. That's, that's a, you know, that's I think I got like tell $50 me. of that on my desk, <laughs> I'm realizing. Yeah, that's a lot of lattes, I'm telling you. So, it's de- I mean, if they're reporting it in these, uh, you know, in their earnings reports, it's it's definitely uh, a tactic, I would think. Yes. Yeah. But I got to say, the father in me, the personal <laughs> responsibility, oh. like, keep track of your gift card. <laughs> but you already said you lost Several. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and and I only blame myself. Oh. Much as I blame myself for the boot that I'm, the, the orthopedic boot on my foot, as we were talking about before the show. Looking at my phone, not paying attention, that's on me, not on Starbucks. Can I build Starbucks for my orthopedic boot? <laughs> uh, give it a try. Um, also, another story, the Washington Secretary of State certified the election results this week. It was a record low turnout for a Washington general election. One candidate didn't even vote for himself and lost by one vote in Rainier, Washington, outside of Olympia. City Council candidate Damian Green said that he thought voting for himself would seem narcissistic. I mean, this is a story that you sit down an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old, and you say, hey, in life, always believe in yourself. And if you ever run for anything, vote for yourself. You'll get at least one vote. Because the final vote was um, 247 to 246, and his opponent uh, also had been planning endlessly to vote for himself, but he kept forgetting. And at the very end, his wife makes him go vote. But if if uh, our uh, candidate here who was concerned about being too narcissistic had voted, it would have been a tie, and I don't know how they would have broken that. No. That close. If a candidate had said publicly, I will not be voting for myself because I don't like to toot my own horn, would that have made you more likely to vote for that person? Of course. Or less likely. Of of course you're not going to vote for somebody who doesn't think enough of themselves to 
mark that down. I mean, there's one thing being shy and you don't want to be too arrogant, but you at least have to say I'm running for this for a reason because I think I might do an okay job. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not basing political decisions <laughs> off that. Okay. Fair enough. Um, let's see. We're getting toward the end of the show. Joni, you were, you were telling me about a, a, a comment. This has been a national, international controversy over the war in the Middle East and how we talk about it and the positions that we take and the rhetoric we use. And Washington State uh, Congress member Pramila Jayapal is part of this. Boy, was she ever part of this. Uh, she went on um, CNN with Dana Bash uh, on Sunday. And just one note to everybody, if you're going to go on the Sunday shows, you want to come come off after and say, I did pretty well on that. No, she did not. She equivocated so much that it became like a national and international story, as you said. She tried, as she said, to balance a sort of... Um, the outrage, but this, the questions that she was asked by, by the host, Dana Bash, had to do with, um, you know, there's been so much sexual violence and assault against these uh, kidnapped Israeli women and some who weren't kidnapped, but, but, but many who had. And she kept saying, well, you know, rape is really bad, but uh, sexual violence is, is, you know, absolutely something that we all object to. However, mm-hmm. and she just, I mean, the week, she was in a storm this week, and you kind of wonder who's doing PR for her because it was, it was just, it was negative. Now, she did, as some of the university presidents yes. who have stepped in it, issue a statement and try to correct it. After that many days, the damage is done. Yeah. Okay, we're at the end of the show, and now I definitely need something to smile about. Can anybody tell me something that was well, uplifting or hopeful or pleasing this week i mean i always mention sports but i'm going to do it again okay. the huskies made the playoffs i mean come oh, on yeah. oh, what a the, great week the college football playoffs yeah. and they're in the sugar bowl for sure yes. right yeah, yeah. uh my, and you have to fly a lot hawaiian airlines to, get to <laughs> new orleans to watch the sugar but there's bowl. fewer fewer flights available <laughs> yes amanda uh, I was going to say what made me smile this week was all the very creative signs and T-shirts oh, yes. at the Save Denny Blaine meeting. Oh. Um, uh, this this wasn't a sign or a T-shirt, but the one that made me laugh is someone during the public comments said, when we said Seattle was becoming a playground for the rich, I didn't think literally. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the sign that you were telling me about? Oh, am I I allowed to say that over the radio? Yes. yes. Okay. It said um, there was someone, one of the signs said gay buns over shady funds. Yes. Gay (laughs) buns over shady funds. Joni, what did you say? Opening of of Boys in the Boat. Uh, Private screenings, I guess, this week. George Clooney in town. And then the movie opens um, Christmas. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good stuff. I'll, I'll add to your sports note. The Mariners traded outfielder Jared Kelnick to the Atlanta Braves, and it's been. I'm happy about that because it's been so sad watching this. He was supposed to be yeah. fantastic, and he never was. And he got so frustrated that he kicked a water cooler and broke his toe, so he wasn't even playing. It's just been awful for Jared Kelnick, and the fact that he's been traded. Definitely means he's going to become a, an, an all star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm happy for him. Right. All right. He was hard to watch. Let's say hard to watch. All right. Thank you for joining us on Week in Review. That's Joni Balter over there, political analyst, contributing columnist. Amanda Zoe, Seattle Times environmental climate reporter. Who knows where she'll she'll um, uh, row in next to <laughs> do her next story. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Thank you all. Great to see you. Thank you. 
Thank Bill. you, Bill. Thank you for listening or why and or watching. And, uh, you know, the show is produced by Kevin Kniestet and Juan Pablo, uh, Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Help us out getting it up on the live stream. Bernard Wallet makes it sound great the way he runs the board. And my appreciation to everybody, appreciation, and to you for listening. I just hope you'll join us for our year in review in a week. That's going to be fun. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.